Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. This is Album Clash. Hello, my name is Dr. Green Thumb. Hello, my name is Dr. Alban. <laughs> Very good. Hello, Kevin, how are you? I'm really good. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Just back from holiday uh, down in sunny Cornwall. Sunny but windy Cornwall. So, yeah, all good. I'm certainly in a much better mood than I was last week. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Don't give the game away. <laughs> Three out of ten now, mate. I mean, come on. I had a terrible time. <laughs> I think that says more about you <laughs> than it does about the Orbs debut album, mate. Nope. <laughs> uh, welcome to Album Clash, everyone. It's a new clash this week. It's the final clash for the time being, at least, in our Electronica season. Kev, what are we going through and what's the connection? So, um, it's one of our more tangential... Um, connections this time this week we will be going through orchestral maneuvers in the dark's second album organization next week we will be doing soft cells debut and non-stop erotic cabaret and it's essentially because both of these albums have been lauded as pioneering they're hugely influential and when we go through both albums the influence on Depeche Mode when we went through that, like you can certainly see how they influenced their debut and everything that sort of goes forward through the 80s with electronic music, really. And here's me thinking the connection was going to be Plazzy Scousers and Wolves. <laughs> well, I did think I did think about that because obviously <laughs> one band is from the Leisure Peninsula and uh, Mark Almond is from a, a place that is desperately been trying not to be referred to as Merseyside since 1974. Yeah, sorry, residents of Southport. It's definitely in Merseyside, not Lancashire. So there you go. Yeah, just accept that the uh, Local Government Reorganisation Act occurred, SOS. <laughs> exactly, yeah, quite. Uh, right, anyway, before we start getting into organisation, though, can't get you out of my head time. Do you have any shite, Kev? I do. So I was at a I was at a meeting this week with my with my work and I was about to leave the building and they needed to get a key to allow to allow me to leave. One of the, one of the people on the reception said, "I've got the key," which inevitably <laughs> led to my brain going, "Urban Cookie Collective." I've got the key. I've got the secret. So yes, that has been in my head uh, since then. So the key, the secret by the Urban Cookie Collective. Point of order. That's not shite. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of them where it's a bit shite, but it's acceptable shite. <laughs> Distinctly cheesy mid nineties Euro pop. Yes. Very good. Uh, well, I have no shite this week. Right, okay. That was easy. <laughs> yeah, indeed it was. Uh, so, do you have anything that you'd like to give a tip or a hat to? So, usually we try and um, bring up something new or something interesting that we've come across. And I did note, so on, in my notes, I did put down a different song than the one I'm actually going to put forward, because I'm going to be honest. The person I was going to put forward was uh, Jamie Webster, someone who we both really like. Yep. But I'm going to have to be truthful because that's not what's been stuck in my head for the past uh, week, couple of weeks. And it's your fault. <laughs> 
Right, okay. Which I'm, I'm happy for it to be stuck in my head, but it is incredibly infectious. So when I was picking this clash, I did consider another Vince Clark album by Erasure. And I noted that you'd tweeted something about, like, there's a Scrubs episode where they, like, sort of sing a little respect throughout the episode. Yes, so indeed. since then, I have had a little respect stuck in my head. Brilliant. On loop. And it's an absolute banger. It's it's what I would certainly describe as a break glass banger, where if your party's going wrong, if it's all going downhill, stick that on, people get up and dance, and it is a belter. Kev? You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Although having it stuck in my head for about two weeks is not good. <laughs> I would also say that Stop by Erasure is another break glass banger. It is. It's, uh, it's a, Anyway, yeah, good stuff. We've already we've already lauded Vince Clark enough uh, on Album Clash for now. I'm sure we will return to him at a later date. Uh, right, so my tip of the hat is to something new, and it's to something that I really, really like, obviously. <laughs> so it, the song is called Motorbike. And it's by a 19-year-old London-based singer, guitarist, producer, Gretel Hanlon. It's only her third single. It was released uh, last month, as we record, in January. And it's a really, really fun piece of grungy indie. And it's got a great hook to it as well. So think Granddaddy. Think Placebo. Think early Kings of Leon, even, before they tried to go stadium after touring with U2. And, like, shove those things all together and combine it with with a young woman who's got a really deep, velvety, smooth voice. It's fucking brilliant. She's 19. It's great. You'll love it. That sounds all kinds of good. I mean, in terms of the playlist, which is available on YouTube Music and on the evil Spotify, I'm just thinking that that's a hell of a jump, though, from... (laughs) (laughs) from a a little respect (laughs) to that i mean yeah yeah but there you go um so yeah they will both be added to the uh, to the playlist and enjoy them because i've not heard i've not heard tim's choice but it sounds a belter and well a little respect is a belter the wheatest version not it is not a belter it is terrible It is terrible, as were Wheatus generally. Indeed. But yes, that's such is the eclectic nature of our musical tastes that uh, we're happy to leap from Erasure over to uh, to Gretel Hanlon. So, um, yeah, there you go. Boss. All right, then. Shall we do some top trumps? Let us get into the top trumping. Oh, <laughs> okay. So I reclaimed the throne uh, last time out with the White Room. So it is my go first on organization and i'm not so confident here where am i all right let's go for sales let's go for sales around two hundred thousand copies organization sold okay so i am in the lead so it's circa five hundred thousand. ah shit okay yeah so you go one nil up and it's your pick okay so in terms of charts Highest in the UK was number five. Oh, number six for organization. Highest in the US, number 22. So organization was not actually released in the US, and so I have no US chart position. Okay. That also means, however, that uh, a certain critic whom we know and don't love will not be making an appearance on today's show. Oh, damn. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, so you're 2-0 up then. Okay, um, so certifications I'm confident about, given what we've already had. So in UK and Canada, mm-hmm. uh, went platinum. Shit, I've got gold in UK and France. French love a bit of OMD. Indeed, so the best I can do is a draw. I'm 3-0 down after three. Okay, awards. Yep. None. <laughs> Oh, I've got a draw. Also none. <laughs> <laughs> Although I believe that Soft Cell were nominated for the best British group at the 82 Brits. doesn't count, Kev. It's not on the list, so no. No. <laughs> okay. Lists. And I've got a cracker on here. All right, then. Go on. In 2003, it was included in uh, the top 25 college radio albums of all time. And that's not even the best one. All I have is that in 2013, the bizarrely named website Slicing Up Eyeballs placed it at number 34 in the top 100 albums of 1980. So, very specific. (laughs) Okay, I've got a better one. Go on, then. So, in 2012, I don't think OMD are on this. In 2012, in Out Magazine, it was number 66 on their list of the 100 greatest gayest albums of all time. Right, that is a belter. I would question the low placement. Are there seriously 65 gayer albums than this? (laughs) (laughs) And and incidentally, that is in no way a criticism of non-stop erotic cabaret, as we'll go on to talk about next week. But seriously, 65 albums are considered to be more gay and more out than this I mean, it doesn't hide. It it very much... It is out, (laughs) that album. Exactly. I want to, I seriously want to know what they put at number one. <laughs> we will have to find out for next time. We will. Uh, okay, so, well, you've won at 4 0, and there's only one category left. Okay, so scores, all music, mm-hmm. four and a half out of five. <sighs> four out of five. Rolling Stone, three out of five. Ditto. And in both cases, sorry to give the game away for next week a little bit, I think that's incredibly harsh. Mm hmm. Record Mirror, five out of five. Four out of five. Smash Hits, eight and a half out of ten. Get this, Smash Hits for organisation, five out of ten. It's not a very Smash Hits album, though. It's not, and I'll come back to that in a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there we go. You've twatted me there, five nil. Not a whitewash, though, on account of getting a draw because neither album won an award. You played a snooker. Yeah, indeed I did. Uh, right then, that's Top Trump's over and done with. Okay. I was right to not be confident. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> Should I start taking us through the background to OMD's organisation? Yeah, I think so. Right, okay. So, as Kev said earlier, Organisation was the second studio album by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. It was released on the 24th of October 1980, incidentally the same day my wife was born, on Dindisc Records. It was recorded at OMD's own Gramophone Suite Studio in Liverpool, as well as at Ridge Farm in Surrey, Advision in London, and The Manor in Oxfordshire. And it was produced by Mike Howlett. So, who are Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark? So, the main two in OMD are Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys. And as Kev said earlier, both hail from the Wirral near Liverpool. And they met at primary school in Mel's. So, in their teenage years, they were involved in various local groups. 
there was a, a seven-piece band called Id that got together in 1977. That included drummer Malcolm Holmes, who would go on to be a member of OMD. Around that same time, McCluskey and Humphreys did a more experimental collaboration, which they called VCL-11. Uh, remember that name. Uh, it's named after a valve pictured on the rear sleeve of Kraftwerk's Radioactivity album. Mm. Mm, indeed. Uh, so, after it split in 1978 due to the classic musical differences, VCL-11 was renamed Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, a name that was taken from song lyrics that Andy McCluskey had scrawled on his bedroom wall. So the original intention was that they'd only play one gig and therefore the name Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark wouldn't be of any consequence. However, hindsight being the wonderful thing that it is, in 1988, Andy McCluskey expressed his regret at having chosen, and I quote, such a very silly name. I mean, it is a very silly name, but saying that though, no one really refers to them as their full name. They are commonly known. No, they are OMD. Yeah. So their early days, their early sound was very much defined by a DIY ethos. And that's mostly due to the fact they were working on a very limited budget. So in a 2019 interview with Record Collector, Andy McCluskey said it started out pretty ambient with just bass guitar and Paul making things out of his aunt's radios, which he cannibalized for the circuit boards. Then once we got a cheap electric piano and organ, we subconsciously wrote tunes. Their first gig was at Eric's Club in Liverpool. That was in October of 1978. And in May of 79, they released their debut single, Electricity. Uh, that was released on Factory Records, and it reached number 99 in the UK. So um, Electricity is also an absolute belter as well. It was produced by the legendary Martin Hamnett um, of Factory. Oh. And you can you can certainly tell that he has a, an influence of it on him because of... The similarity to the sound, uh, particularly of Joy Division. Yes. So of working with Factory and of their meeting with Anthony H. Wilson, Paul Humphreys, in that same Record Collector article, said, Tony Wilson only signed us to placate his wife. She listened to our demo and told him he should put our music out. And we never wanted success. OMD was our art project that got out of hand. When we first met Tony, we took it as an insult when he said, guys, you're the future of pop. We were like, fuck off, Tony. This is art. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people said, fuck off, Tony. <laughs> well, he, and he was given to making various grandiose prophetic statements as well. Yeah. Didn't he describe Sean Ryder as like a modern day Keats or something? He like did, that? yes. <laughs> Let's just leave that one there, shall we? <laughs> uh, okay, so around a similar time, and you mentioned Martin Hamlet there, they actually went on tour supporting Joy Division. That had a major influence on OMD's sound. And it also impressed another one of the luminaries of electronic music, Gary Newman. He asked OMD to go on tour with him. And in 2011, Paul Humphreys told the Dallas Observer, what was important about Gary was that he gave us our first big break. He saw us opening for Joy Division and he asked us to go on tour with him. We did a huge tour with Gary in 1979. All of a sudden we went from the small clubs to playing huge arenas. Gary was very good to us. Fair play. Yeah, and I mean, I did consider doing uh, The Pleasure Principle as well. It's a great album. Because like OMD, Soft Cell, Human, Human League, yeah, 
those those four particularly sort of pushed the envelope of electronic music at this time and influenced so much that was coming coming through then. Absolutely did. And, and yeah, so so I'm sure we'll return to Gary Newman at a later date on Album Clash because I think the pleasure principle's brilliant. Yeah, and you can tell that the man uh, definitely liked Bowie a bit. <laughs> Just a bit. Just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. So off the back of the success of Electricity... They signed a seven-album deal with Dindisc, and they released their self-titled debut album in February of 1980. So again, Andy McCluskey and Record Collector. Dindisc signed us on the back of the Electricity single, and we built our own studio in an abandoned warehouse in Liverpool with our advance because we thought there was no way in hell anyone was going to buy an album. So when we got dropped for selling no records, we'd at least have a studio. We recorded it in three weeks, and we were utterly surprised when we had a hit with it. It wasn't much more than a year after we'd played our first gig at Eric's, where we'd just dared ourselves to go up and play one gig with a crazy name. Back to the fact that they didn't expect OMD to turn into anything. It was just, yeah, we'll see how we go, you know. So, so such a success the debut album was, it reached number 27 in the UK and was certified gold. And a re-recorded version of one of the tracks from the debut album called Messages, the re-recorded version produced by Mike Howlett, was released in May of 1980. It was a big hit. It reached number 13 in the UK, and it got to 67 on the US Dance Club Songs chart. And it's a really good tune. Yeah, it is. It's a belter. And so eager to follow up on the success of the debut album and of Messages, the single, Dindisc asked for a follow-up album, which they wanted to be released before the end of 1980. No pressure, like, you've released your debut album in February of 1980, and, and then you've got a hit single by May, and the record company said, right, lads, new album by the end of the year, yeah? Christ on a bike. Along with touring commitments as well, I'm hastened to add. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, McCluskey, Humphreys, and Malcolm Holmes, they went to the Gramophone Suite Studio in Liverpool to lay down the initial bed tracks, before heading down to Ridge Farm with Mike Howlett to finish off what was to become organisation. I want to talk about Malcolm Holmes. He'd previously drummed in their previous iteration, The It, um, and he'd been a sort of session musician for them on the debut album. For this album, he was then recruited as a full-time band member. And in the, the Wikipedia article, it says, replacing the TIAC tape recorder named Winston. <laughs> Is that a um, 1984 reference by any chance? <laughs> I have no idea, but I like the fact that they named a tape recorder. I'm, I'm bang into that. <laughs> Bit like naming a volleyball. <laughs> okay, so as we've already mentioned a couple of times, the style of this album in particular is very much influenced by Joy Division. And again, Paul Humphreys explained why to Record Collector. He said, we'd played with Joy Division and we'd been entranced by their melancholy and darkness. They really influenced the direction we went in with the second album with songs like Stan Lowe and Statues, obviously both of which we'll come on to. And regarding working with Mike Howlett, they said it was also the first time we'd worked with a producer. We learned a lot from Mike. We were young and didn't understand the recording process and he guided us and pushed us. He was sensitive to our more esoteric experimental side. He was a very good musician too. We first worked them on Messages, the single version which had given us our first hit. We needed a follow-up, and we'd had the first beginnings of Anola Gay for the first album, and that became our first priority. Okay, uh, so that's everything I have on background. 
Before we go on to talk about the artwork, Kev, how did you first discover Organisation? I ha- I have heard I had heard the album in full before this before this clash. Basically, like I had listened to some of these pioneers because I'm particularly OMD because of the link with Joy Division, who you know I have a massive mm-hmm. affinity for. Yeah. So yeah, that I'd I'd listened to Organisation around the same the around the time that I kind of listened to Unknown Pleasures because I was in a <laughs> I like that dark Christ sound on a bike, Kev. Well, you must have been, a, <laughs> been in a really bleak mood. <laughs> yeah, like I just, I just um I just felt like it needed to be dark. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so this is a first listen for me. So obviously I'm very familiar with the opening track and one or two others on the album I had heard before, but I'd never really got into OMD. Uh, so I was glad of the chance to, to go through it for this clash. Yeah. Right then, uh, shall we talk about the artwork? Yes, let's let's do so. Okay, and in another Factory Records connection, the artwork is designed by Peter Saville. Indeed it is. Uh, the photograph is taken by Richard Nutt, and it is of the cloud-covered peak of Marsco in the Red Cullen Hills on the Isle of Skye. What I've said is it is a very peter savile design yeah you've got the dark and brooding image which nicely captures the tone of the record but around that you've just got a really minimalist design so you've got a black border the white text saying okay maneuvers in the dark organization and that's it yeah it's the kind of the design of it and the picture sort of speak to the bleakness uh, within the album that sort of underlying dark current throughout yes indeed uh, just one more thing to say is that the name of the album, Organisation, is another homage to Kraftwerk because it refers to the name of the band that was Kraftwerk's precursor. Oh, right. Okay. Which we obviously discussed when we went through um, Kraftwerk. Indeed, we did. But yeah, it's a, it's a really stark album cover. Perfectly captures what the album is about. But that's about all I've got to say about it. Yeah, I've I've got nothing more. Nothing about fonts? It, I mean, it's not the most exciting font that we've had thus far. No. It's it's perfectly fine, but uh, yeah, I don't I don't have I don't have deep font chat on this. <laughs> fine. <laughs> it's been a few weeks since we've had a, any decent font chat. To be honest, we may have a little font chat next week. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> right. Shall we get into the album itself? Yeah, let's get stuck in. So we start with Enola Gay, and people might be familiar with this one, Kev. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's fairly well known. (laughs) Well, in fact, it was the only single released from the album, and it was a massive hit. Number eight in the UK, number 34 on the US Dance Club Songs chart, and it sold a staggering five million copies worldwide. I mean, it's absolutely wild that a song with those lyrics... is as remarkably popular as it is, but it is an absolute belter. It's a pop classic. It is. So you mentioned the lyrics, so I'll go straight to those now. The song itself, if you don't know, it's about the B-29 Superfortress bomber that dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima on the 6th of August 1945, uh, which killed more than 100,000 people. And there are several allusions to the bombing in the lyrics. 
So you've got the line, is mother proud of little boy today? Which is a reference both to the nickname given to the bomb, little boy, and the fact that the, the pilot and captain, he had named the aircraft Enola Gay after his mother. Yeah, and I mean, it's so clever, that the lyrics in this. So 8.15, the time it's always been, which yes. 8.15 in the morning was when the when the bomb dropped. Indeed. N- not a reference to the 8.15 from Manchester. <laughs> And indeed, the um, house at number 73. Uh, 74! It's the second time! I always say 73. I've got it in my head that it's a three with Sandy Toxvig. And Banksy. <laughs> okay, we have now truly surpassed ourselves. We are going over the same inane jokey banter that we've done on previous episodes. This is not a clip show, people. We've just run out of things to say to each other. Don't don't worry, we'll we'll find some more um, inane references from eighties and early nineties to uh, to lash in. We will, but no, I completely agree about the lyrics. Very very clever indeed. So on the song itself, in an interview on the BBC's Anodyne magazine show, The One Show, Andy McCluskey said, <laughs> "I mean, it is Kev. It is so Anodyne." I mean, it it is basically just killing time. Yeah, it is like the reason it's so anodyne is because people have their tea watching the one show, so it doesn't have anything. It doesn't have anything controversial. It doesn't have anything heavy hitting. And I love this uh, the way they sort of they'll they might have a slightly sort of a story with like a bit of emotional impact or something, and then they'll ask their celebrity guest. So, child prostitution, then? You against it, then? <laughs> yeah. Bruce Willis, what, what do you think about the Holocaust? <laughs> Quite so. And now a segment about cheese with Giles Brandreth. <laughs> yes. That's the one show. And that's our first Twitter clip. Brilliant. So there you go. We've not come up with obscure, inane chats about 80s TV. Very much modern TV, but... <laughs> I mean, it's pure pebble mill. Oh, God, wow. Boom. There you go, pebble mill. <laughs> there you go. Oi, right. I used to live near pebble mill, incidentally. I, I, anyway. So, McCluskey, the one show, he said he wasn't politically motivated to write the song and that it conveyed an ambivalence about whether it was the right or the wrong thing to do. Mm, does it? Does it, though, Andy? It's it's not ambivalent at all. No. It's like there's the line that uh, your kiss will never fade away. Mm-hmm. Like literally, sort of making a reference to not only obviously the the radiation, but also the fact that Pandora's box was opened with yep. with the dropping of the bomb. Like it was theoretically possible, but whether it was right to do so, well, obviously, I have my own views on it. You may have your you may differ from well, from mine, but. Well, indeed, as people may have their own views, yeah, quite. But but I would say that the opening line of the song even gives lie to Andy McCluskey's uh, own claim there, which is, Enola Gay, you should have stayed at home yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> I don't know, maybe he's slightly worried about American reaction to it or something like that. I don't, I don't know, like, because... It is very much, like, certainly in, in my reading of it, it's very much an anti-nuclear war song. Indeed. Well, you know, the one show, they've always been very pro-nuclear war in their <laughs> country. Yeah, that Matt Baker, like, he wants to... 
He wants to reenact the end of Doctor Strange Love. He wants to ride the missile. <laughs> Don't get Frank Lampard's missus started on the fucking CND. She hates him. Just bang into an ICBM. I'm sorry, I don't know a name. That sounded really, really mean. <laughs> Says a lot about me, probably. <laughs> I would also like to clarify that I have no idea where the Matt Baker is, but he actually wants to um, ride a bomb like at the end of Doctor Strange Love. Well, he went on a training weekend with the army, so let's say yes. <laughs> He's now in the TA. <laughs> this has very quickly descended into farce. <laughs> Uh, should we talk about the song? I, I'm quite I'm quite happy by like, just ripping into the one show for yeah. a bit longer, to be honest. But... Uh, right. So, apparently, some bigoted morons in 1980 uh, interpreted this as being a gay anthem. And the song was therefore banned from being played on BBC children's show Swap Shop. <laughs> yeah. Because it has the word gay in it. Exactly! That's all I can think of. Quite. Okay. <sighs> welcome to Middle England. <laughs> I mean, welcome to that era, England, as well. Uh, we'll be talking about them again next week. Ooh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. So, as you said, what a tune. It's a fucking belter. It, it is. It, like, it's absolute pop perfection. It's got a really great bass line. It's got a lovely hooky synth. Andy McCluskey sings it really well. It and it's it's clever as well. Mm. That you know, like it's got there's so much going on there. So and I'm going to bring out a Joy Division comparison here. And you've already mentioned the the way in which the song combines a really bleak subject with a great poppy hook, and that to me is very much as Joy Division did with Love Will Tear Us Apart. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I want to give a shout, and it's unusual to do this on an electro song, a synth-pop song, but I want to give a shout to the rhythm section. I think Mal Holmes' drumming and Andy McCluskey's bass, they're just they're so tight, they're so good together. So the, the the drumming, I mean, again, obviously we could talk we could talk about uh, Stephen Morris in, in Joy Division and his brilliant drumming, but that kind of sort of snap drumming in this song... It does. It does kind of ironically remind me of the drumming in um, Atomic by mm-hmm. uh, Blondie. Definitely, and we know that Clem Burke is an absolutely phenomenal drummer. Yeah, he certainly is. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, um, it's brilliant. That's all I can say about this song. It's brilliant. Yeah, it is. It's it's one of my favourite songs. It's it's an absolute belter. Yeah, it is. All right then, shall we move on to the next track? Mm-hmm. So track two is Second Thought. And straight away, the sound is so much darker and more Teutonic. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> We've got some hive mind going on. Very Kraftwerk slash Krautrock influence with the minimalist sound. <laughs> yep. And I've even said, and I can also hear the sound of Berlin era Bowie. Without question. Um, and we we talked about how dark and foreboding, like, and obviously um, Iggy's work as well during that period. Yes, the it's got such a dark and moody sound to it. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. there's there's a, a palpable sound of threat in in the synths and that. I think the synths, which are sort of almost choral, ethereal, you know, always in the background. They create a real sense of isolation in the vocal. Does that make any sense? No, no, I understand what you mean. And I think 
that really emphasizes the lyrics. It's gone so far now and it seems it's only me, me at home and you out there and on your way. To me, the song sounds lonely. It's 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 about being isolated. I, I, yeah. No, I, I completely get what you mean. And I think both of these albums are excellent users of space within yes. the within the music to engender an atmosphere to engender a feeling and they they do it incredibly well here there's a beautiful simplicity to it as well that's i think you're absolutely right what you say there about the use of space in the music because this song it doesn't really progress beyond how it starts but to me that is the beauty of it it's all it needs to be it's no frills it's no excess it's just raw mm-hmm and that's exactly what it's supposed to be. I really like this. It's a really moving piece of music. Yeah, I, do. I, I really like it. I think that I, th- I like the bass work as well. We've not even talked about that. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's, again, really, really effective. It, it's just really good at creating an atmosphere. And it is. It doesn't need to, it doesn't need like sort of pyrotechnics or anything because it's set, it set the scene so early. Yeah, I agree. Can we just talk about Andy McCluskey's voice for a second as well? Because mm-hmm. I'll freely admit that one of the reasons I never explored OMD is because I've always found his voice a little bit, a bit partridge. No, I get, I get, I get what you mean by that because it's. I suppose the difficulty for for us and people of our age is that our experience of OMD was when they were a bit naff. Exactly. Like, they come on they come on top of the pops and they're a bit old. Yeah. And they're trying to, like, keep up with dance music and stuff. And, it's, like, it's your, it's your dar trying to, trying to go to the rave. Exactly. And, and I just found the voice a bit grating in that regard. Mm-hmm. I, I was confounded when I heard this because I think his voice sounds phenomenal on this track, as it does at various points through the album. It does. It sounds great on this, and like as as I said on the opening uh, song, he sounds great on that. But I understand what you mean about that kind of. It's a bit partridge. It's a bit like your geography teacher's band. Yeah, yeah exactly. And like, I, I don't think they ever sort of shied away from that because, like, the I've heard Andy McCluskey interviewed before, and he said, you know, like they were going on top of the pops wearing tank tops. And yes. stuff like that. So, the like the next album is Architecture and Morality. Mm-hmm. So you know they definitely leaned into their sort of nerdy. They did look and everything, and yeah, so if you if you kind of found that in his voice, there was enough evidence to kind of support it. Agreed entirely. But I will hold my hands up, having heard uh, well certainly these first two tracks, and said, nope, I was wrong. A really, mm-hmm. really good vocal performance on both. I mean, can we just get a clip of that? Just you saying you're wrong, oh, fuck and off. Do, just play that continually. As long as you can admit that you were overly harsh in your scoring of the orb. Nope. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Fuck I off. will never admit I'm wrong. <laughs> right. Should we move on? Yeah, let's go. Right. VLC eleven is track number three. All right. Okay. Let's go back to Paul Humphreys and the article in Record Collector. VLC 11, which was one of the first experimental pieces we wrote, was named after a valve on the back of Kraftwerk's radioactivity. That's the kind of nerds we were, exactly to what you were saying a few minutes ago. Yeah. What do you think of this track? So, I think it's got a really good bass opening, 
and it also has the sound of a Spectrum game loading. <laughs> and then there's sort of loads of stuff going on with the synths. And then I'm not sure what I think about it. So, like, I can see how innovative it is. And the synth work is excellent, but it never really gets its nails into me mm-hmm. as the previous two have. And maybe it goes on a bit too long. It needs something else happening for it to really stand out. I don't think it does. I don't think it's bad. I just, I don't know. It, do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean, because I've said something very, very similar. So you've got three tracks in, and they all sound very different to one another. I agree, the bass is great. You can, again, really tell the craft work influence with those little synth parts and the increasingly industrial sounds that come in and out throughout the track, as you mentioned. But yeah, I'm not entirely sure what I think of it either. I have to say as well, and having praised Andy McCluskey's voice a minute ago, I think the breathy, almost tuneless way in which he sings this, I don't really understand what he's trying to achieve. I, I actually mm-hmm. find it quite distracting. Yeah, it, does, it takes away from the from the song, really. Yeah, it does. So, yeah, there's things to like in this, particularly musically, but it's a bit odd. Yeah, bit of a cure tag. Very, very good way of describing it. Yes, bit of a cure tag, very much so. But, okay, that's all I've got to say about it. Yeah, same here. Right, Motion and Heart is the next track. Briefly considered to be the second single from the album, and so there was a new version recorded at Amazon Studios in Liverpool, but when they decided against releasing it as a single, it ended up as the B-side of the single Souvenir. So the opening sounds like the sinister start of a horror film set at an abandoned amusement park. (laughs) So I don't understand why you were considering that as a um, as your second single. <laughs> well, that's probably why they re-recorded it, because they thought that too. Right, <laughs> so this to me, it's got a distinct air of nightclubbing about it, the Iggy Pop song, and that's not the last time I'm going to mention nightclubbing on this clash, by the way. But also it sounds somewhat vaudeville, which I guess is yeah. the point but it just doesn't really resonate with me. No, it, do- it doesn't for me either. What I've said is, it sounds like it could be the theme tune of a bad 80s sitcom about a lovable rogue tradesman who's always trying to get one over on his boss, probably starring <laughs> Carl Howman. <laughs> so are you basically just describing brushstrokes? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I guess I am. <laughs> but you know what I mean, though? It's got that... It, it... I do, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's a bit too kitsch. I feel harsh saying it. It just doesn't resonate with me. No. And having evoked Nightclubbing, a song which we both waxed lyrical over a number of months ago now, this goes nowhere near the heights that Nightclubbing does. No. It's odd, and it's certainly not what I expected. I, I don't know, like... Yeah, I'm still not sure how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. There are elements that I like about it and there are elements that I don't. Yep, I agree. And with that, I suggest we move on to statues. Okay, let's um, let's move on. Okay, so according to OMD's official website, this is about Ian Curtis of Joy Division. Indeed. So I looked at some of the lyrics here and figured out what that might be. So you've got lines like, the way you moved, I can't explain, the mood subsides and grows again. Is that a reference to the way, you know, Ian Curtis used to move quite erratically when he was on stage? Mm -hmm. 
And then later on, you've got, I can't imagine how this ever came to be. So obviously 1980, you are very, very close to, you know, the time when Ian Curtis committed suicide. So is is that a reference to that sense of shock and that sense of loss that was felt by that? that so my understanding is that, yes, that was the case. That okay. It was kind of their response to his suicide. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so the first note I've written here, much better. Yeah, they, they, they're they good at creating an atmosphere. So it has that, it has a really atmospheric, cinematic kind of mm-hmm. dark opening. It does. And like the low-key delivery of the vocals. So it reminded me of, you know, Teddy Hall's vocals on Stereotypes? Yes. It, it kind of, it brought that to mind for me. The, it's that sort of low, low delivery in that. I can see that. Very much so, and I also like the way that that gentle, low-key vocal is contrasted by the dark and the brooding bass line mm-hmm. throughout the song. So again, with that, I can hear the Joy Division influence, and again, I'm getting all sorts of Berlin-era Bowie vibes from this. It never lets you settle this song. No. The verse is discordant. You know, it it makes you feel a bit uneasy. But then the chorus is a lot more soothing. And again, there's a good juxtaposition there. I I, I really like statues. Really good song. No, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's really good. It's really affecting as well. Yes, affecting is a very, very good way to describe it. And with that, should we move on to the next track? Yeah, let's go. Okay, which is The Misunderstanding. Uh, this is one that was actually written and performed by Id back in 1977. Mm-hmm. So it is, in that regard, the oldest track on the album. And after we've just talked about the sort of dark, brooding, unsettling air that Statues creates, this one starts even darker. And this is one yeah. where I've said it's very cinematic and atmospheric, that opening. You know, you've got that sinister sort of synth chord that just fades in, and then you've got various industrial jangling noises that come in, like someone's rattling an old radiator down the hall somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then again, when the song itself kicks in, it's a really arresting piece of music. There's There's a real urgency to this. So, hive mind again. So, I had notes around panicked, urgent vocals. Mm, I've said unhinged. (laughs) (laughs) So, we've given our best, for God's sake, you know. Please, 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 can we go home? There's a desperation to the way he sings that line. Uh, So, we've talked a lot about things that this was influenced by, or that OMD were influenced by. I want to talk about because one of the reasons you picked these two albums was because of their influence, and this is where I want to start talking about that a bit. I can hear in this song, The Cure, mm-hmm. the late 80s, early 90s era Depeche Mode, even the likes of Nine Inch Nails, to be honest with you, in this. And this, you can really tell why OMD and why this album has been cited so many times as being a big influence on so many acts and so many artists. Well, I suppose as well that, like... I mean, obviously, we've talked about the the Bowie era Berlin stuff, but like, sort of, this is the latter end of it. In, in that pop didn't have to be light; it could it could go into dark places. And whilst there were people who did that sort of stuff, it wasn't as 
right up front until you get to this kind of period. Yeah. Certainly, I'm happy to be corrected, but you know, with Joy's Division, with um, with OMD, with all these other people who were sort of emerging around this time, is the the darkness and the grimness and like the greyness of of that era, Britain, sort of it's absolutely exuding through the music. Hundred percent agree with you. And as you said, it was an interesting era in pop music that it didn't have to be happy clappy stuff until the middle of the decade when Pete Waterman came along and fucked it up for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a lot about song length and arm clash, particularly last week, Kev, didn't we? Oh, fuck yeah. So this one's five minutes long. And to me, it never feels it because it keeps you guessing throughout. It's really unconventional in the way it's structured. And that's one of the things I really like about it. So I do really like it. But in terms of song length, I could probably lose about the last 30 seconds of Discordant Fade Out. Oh, fuck off. I could possibly lose that and not not lose anything in relation to the song or or how it's made me feel. All right, fine. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) I want me two minute, two minutes on. That's all. <laughs> right. The next track is "The More I See You." This is a cover. The song was originally written by Harry Warren and Mac Gordon in 1945. The nice lad. <laughs> nice. <laughs> See, I thought you could have gone with Flash's lad or Commissioner's lad <laughs> or Intosh's lad. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. (laughs) Uh, Our thanks go out to Neil Atkinson and the rest of the crew at the Anfield Wrap for allowing us to steal your joke. Yeah, thanks very much. (laughs) So, the most well-known and the most successful version of this song was released in 1966 by Chris Montez. It went to number 16 in the US and number 3 in the UK. According to, again, OMD's official website... The OMD version actually started out as a separate song, but Andy kept singing the lyrics to The More I See You over the top and decided that the song he had written and that song complemented each other. So there you go. And what I've written is that's probably why this version is very different and significantly better Mm -hmm. than all other versions of this song. So, I mean, I'm sure I've heard other versions of it, but I can't say that I particularly remembered them. But this, he's got really interesting vocals here, and I don't mean interesting in a bad way. I think it, they they are really effective. They are really effective. I think this is one where you can really hear where Dave Garn got some of his inspiration mm-hmm. from for his vocal style, particularly again as you move towards the end of the eighties and the stuff that Depeche Mode were putting out. Then there's a real darkness to the way he sings this. Well, I think. Obviously, we've lauded the work of Vince Clark and his certainly his early work. I can see how he was influenced by this. Yes, that that kind of stripped back verse, mm-hmm. and you think of something like "Just Can't Get Enough" or something. You know, it's got a really stripped back verse, but then a much more expansive chorus. Yeah, and you know, he particularly during his Depeche Mode Yazoo period, that he's very much sort of looking at that template. I agree entirely. And if you recall, when we went through the Vince Clark derby the other week, he had claimed himself that OMD were one of his his big mm-hmm. inspirations. And yeah, I, I think you're right. You, you can hear it here very much so. 
So, a few weeks ago, when we went through an album that I really didn't like, uh, we talked about the acid test for a cover version is doing something interesting with the source material. I mean, this very much passes that acid test for me. Oh, absolutely. And what I like about it is that it fits well within the album. Mm -hmm. If you didn't know this was a cover, it would sound like any other song on this album. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it's still got some of those really good poppy hooks in there that come from a song written in, in, in this era, you know, the show tune era, if you like. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I like this. I think this, you could take 30 seconds or so off. Because mm-hmm. I think it, if I did have to criticise it at all, it just sort of stumbles to an end. Uh, and I think you could finish it a bit earlier. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's that's harsh to say that. To be honest, uh, but yeah, I like the more I see you. I think it's a, a very commendable cover and fits really well on the album. Absolutely. All right, the next song is "Promise." So it's got a wonderful opening. This, yes, it does. And if you didn't pick it up from some of the things that had sort of gone on before, you can definitely see why this album was so influential. Oh God, yeah. Because of how odd and different sounding this must have been. I've written a note saying early Depeche Mode. Exactly that. So, yeah, I've said this is one of those set the template songs and I've said early Vince Clark stuff. You know, this wouldn't sound out of place on Speak and Spell or Upstairs at Eric's, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. In itself, it is very clearly influenced by the Human League, we have to say that. Yeah. OMD were one of a few artists at this time making music in this style. But people are still making music that sounds like this. Holy Ghost, Nation of Language are a band I've spoken about on Album Clash before. They're two bands of whom I have a great deal of time, and their music definitely owes a debt to this style of music. And there's more mainstream artists that you could say that to. You, if, if this was a LaRue song, you, you know, you wouldn't bat an eyelid, would you? It's like, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, she is someone that, that, that very much has taken her inspiration and her influence from this style of song. And what I've said is, I'm really surprised that this wasn't a single. Yeah. This surely would have found an audience on the dance floors. Well, we've used this phrase before, and I I will use it again, is that that chorus is hooky as fuck. It is. And just to be clear, whilst we've mentioned Joy Division a lot on this clash, you don't mean hooky in that that No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've praised the bass work, but it's definitely not hooky-style bass work. No, it's it, it's got a really good hook to it. And yeah, I, I completely agree that this would find a crowd on the dance floor. Mm, absolutely. So just a couple of things. Uh, it is apparently the first song that Paul Humphreys ever wrote, and he provides the lead vocal on this track. And I think I really like his vocal performance. It's different enough from Andy McCluskey to keep it interesting and to make you sort of stand up and take notice. But it's not so different as to make it seem out of place on the album, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some real beauty in the lyrics here. So it seems to be about wanting to be with someone who you're not with, you know, which Eric Clapton might uh, have some experience in (laughs) in writing songs (laughs) about that. So far from me to be the same, I'll try again, I'm here alone. I shan't forget, I feel this way, and all the time you can dance until we meet again. Yeah, I really like this. I think it's got plenty going for it, lyrically and musically. And as we've said, I would have, 
if I'd been uh, at the record company, I'd have been telling them to release this as a single. Absolutely. And uh, in a flash, we are already onto the last track. We are indeed. And residents of Ellesmere Port, you will be delighted to know that this one is for you. <laughs> Not enough songs about oil refineries. No. So the last track is Stanlow, which is, to quote Paul Humphreys in The Record Collector, a love song to this Stanlow oil refinery, which is in Ellesmere Port in Cheshire. We used to do a lot of gigs in Manchester when we were on factory. We'd go over from the Wirral and come back late at night and Stanlow looked like this futuristic, beautiful city and we fell in love with it. I mean, if you like Stanlow, mate, fucking drive around Runcorn late at night because Rock Savage will knock your socks off. So I was about to say that the only the only equivalent song that I can think of in comparison to Stanlow is The Lights of Rock Savage by uh, Baltic Fleet, Great which is... Um, praising the Rock Savage chemical works in Runcorn. So back to that same quote again, Paul Humphrey saying, Andy's dad worked there and we got into the refinery to record all the machines. We thought we need to represent the actual machines on there. So yes, the industrial sounds that you hear were recorded at Stanlow Refinery itself. I mean, speaking of which, we've mentioned Berlin-era Bowie before. We've even mentioned Iggy Pop I mean, mass production, Mm -hmm. the last track on The Idiot, like that Teutonic industrial sound. So I may have invented a word. (laughs) Go on. So in my notes, I said, really atmospheric opening that blends into a very Kraftwerkian synth. (laughs) I like the word Kraftwerkian. It elevates. Indeed. It's good. But it's it's like and that sort of incorporating the industrial sounds as well because like yeah. you, that's very very much of that style it is. of that oeuvre that so influenced Iggy and and, and Bowie hundred percent and I agree with the with the Kraftwerk reference because that riff when you get to sort of two and a half three minutes it's pure Kraftwerk it could have been lifted straight mm-hmm. off the Man Machine to be honest with you. I think this is a beautiful piece of music. I fucking love this track. I think it's great. I think it's it's such a really gentle and atmospheric way to end the album, and it, it's perfectly in fitting with everything that's gone before. And me, me and you like have both been past Stanlow at night, and it works as like a sort of tribute to to yep. the to the refinery and that because yep. yeah the, it, ha, it does engender those dark lights and the big bloody flame thing going <laughs> yep as you go past on the motorway it does absolutely it does and i really like there's an ambiguity to the lyrics on this so it it could literally be about stanlow and driving past it being lit up every day mm-hmm. or it could also be a lament to a lost love I've seen her face in every day, the same routine along the way, tonight in the rain, alone. I, I've got to say, because I said this is the first time I'd listened to this album all the mm-hmm. way through, and I was taken aback when I first heard this track. I think it's a wonderful way to end this album. It is. Right the way to the end, where you have those industrial sounds just taking you out after the song itself is finished i big big fan of stanlow again to hit um our usual points for regular listeners start well end well 
doesn't matter what you do in between. Yep. As long as you do that, then you hit certain points. And this starts fucking great and ends fucking great. It does. Agreed entirely. Although uh, there are some things in between that I'm very much a fan of as well. I have yeah, to say. yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, but that's it though. That is the album. Lashed it through. We have, we have completely flashed through it. Shall we go on to some reviews? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so most contemporary reviews were positive. Sounds Magazine gave the album five stars. I should have put that in the top trumps. Shit. <laughs> and their reviewer, Dave McCulloch, said that OMD are a youth mirror more valuable than any street-chic punk outfit I can imagine. Warmer than your so-called warm bands, your Bruce Springsteen and your Graham Parkers could ever be. They reflect the young horror of where and how we live, but in their songs, at least, they face the problems with an irresistible, intuitive sense that makes the best pop of any time. I quite like that review, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think that's pretty pretty accurate, really. In Australian daily newspaper The Age, John Teards wrote, Much of the music is hook-laden and highly memorable. OMD have a very distinctive sound, which is hard to beat at when you're looking for the best in a modern electronic style. Again, can't argue with anything of that. Couple more contemporary reviews. Lyndon Barber in Melody Maker wrote OMD have produced not so much a collection of songs as a pervading mood, a feeling of restlessness spiked by an unsettling edge that never allows the music to descend into complacency. A very healthy step forward. Which is proof positive that not everything the Melody Maker ever put out was a load of shite. <laughs> Although I'm still convinced that the edition that, that was in was still shite. <laughs> yes, it was the Melody Maker, of course. Because it, it was the was. Melody Maker. <laughs> As I alluded to during the Top Trumps round, however, Smash Hits magazine were not so enamoured with this album, with their reviewer Mark Ellen writing that he thought OMD should cease clinging to the idea of being a serious experimental band and go all out for the shameless synth-pop single. What the fuck was Enola Gay then, dickhead? I mean, that like that couldn't be any more Smash Hits. <laughs> fuck off. <sighs> And, okay, so I just want to call out one retrospective. And in a change to our usual programming, it is not from all music. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It is from the uh, Stereo Gum website, written just last year to about the 40th anniversary of the album. And in that, Ryan Lee's, I mean, it's an incredibly long, almost Chris Gow length review. (laughs) But there's some good stuff in it, and I'm going to read a few excerpts now. OMD might get more credit in the grand scheme of the new wave era, and yet organisation remains a bit overlooked. Not quite an obscurity, but a forgotten gem. They gave us one of the great albums from the early synth-pop era. At its best, organisation showed what synth-pop could be. The album begins with the song that, all these years later, is the most famous of OMD's early work, Enola Gay. There's a reason for it. Anola Gay is a perfect achievement from those primitive synth-pop days. Like their buzzy debut single, Electricity, the star is the synthesizer. The verse melody is basically a chorus, but then the chorus itself is just an infectious, nimble synth line. Anola Gay also set the stage for the rest of organisation. It's one of the iconic examples of how New Wave could situate bleak, doomsday feelings within sharply written pop music. It takes all the atmospherics of instrumental stretches of Bowie's Berlin albums and weaponizes it in a way. The hook will never leave your head, but then you realise it's actually a song about the US dropping an atomic bomb on Japan. Four decades on, 
organisation feels like a lost classic, an early example of the young synth-pop band forging new sonic territory, but also capturing the feeling of the times. Back then, organisation wasn't just the sound of the future, it was also the sound of the fear that there may be no future at all. That's a really good excerpt, that. It is. I mean, it's a fucking long old review, but I think there's so much in that that we've already talked about, and yeah, really, really well put. Yeah, and as I said, no Nobby this week. This album was never released in the US, so Nobby never reviewed it. Don't worry, he is back next week. Indeed he is. (laughs) Okay, Legacy. So, the album itself has been cited by several people in the music business and beyond as hugely influential on their careers. Uh, So, superstar DJ Paul Van Dyke said it was the first album he ever bought. It was extremely influential, early electronic, but also melodies and poppy elements, the general imprint of what later came from me in music. And then in a 2018 biography of OMD, TV physicist and former member of D-Ream, Professor Brian Cox, wrote the foreword. And professional walker and looking at looker at things. Well, exactly, in which he said, presumably whilst gazing wistfully into the night sky, I persuaded billions my parents... <laughs> <laughs> I persuaded my parents to buy Organisation, an album of gentle darkness beneath clouded skies, which I fell in love with age 12 and still love today. Now, it's not clear if he's talking about the clouded skies, Although I'm sure he loves cloudless skies more, because then you can look at all the stars and that. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! I mean, we like Brian Cox, so you know. Yeah, just, he's he's a good egg. He is a good egg. So for OMD themselves, it was a platform, very much a platform for them to go on to even greater success. So you've already mentioned the follow-up album was called Architecture and Morality. That reached number three in the UK and it sold over four million copies worldwide. It was their most successful album commercially. And it's one of the most influential albums of the early 80s synth pop scene. Even smash hits like that one. (laughs) Their fourth album, which was called Dazzle Ships, that was a mixture of melancholy ballads and upbeat synth pop songs, but it was quite a lot less successful. Although it did still get certified gold in the UK. And so for their subsequent Junk Culture album, they deliberately shifted towards a more mainstream, pop-oriented sound. And I think that speaks back to what you were saying earlier, that our first introductions to OMD were when they were deliberately leaning into that market. And yeah, it was very much a bit, oh, come on, can we get to listen to something good on top of the pops? You know, anyway. Yeah. But it was a successful album, and, and you could argue it really much cemented their place in Pop's upper echelons. So, in 1985, they were asked to contribute a song to the soundtrack of the John Hughes film Pretty in Pink. That track was called If You Leave, and it was a smash hit globally. It got to the top five in the US, Canada, and New Zealand. Perversely, it only got to number 48 in the UK. Then, in 1989, quite suddenly, Paul Humphreys decided to leave. According to Pop Matters, he said of that decision, we had no money, we didn't have any ideas. I just said at the end of the 80s, look, I'm exhausted. It's not working. I'm not so happy with the records we're making. Let's take three years off. Which is what I wanted to do. But the record company and management were all horrified because they're making money and they wouldn't let us do it. There were a lot of divisive people around and they threw a wedge between me and Andy. 
They said, if Paul's not going to do it, Andy, you should continue with the band. And I said, Andy, if you want to do that, then you do it. I'm stopping. And that's how it happened. Obviously, Virgin, who they were with by the time, they were happy to take OMD with Andy as the front man because it was a lot easier. He was a more recognisable face, which was always fine with me. That's how it works with bands and front men. So, yeah, Paul Humphreys left. It was, as I say, quite an amicable, if you like, parting of the ways, but quite definitive, if you like. The next OMD album was released in 1991. That was called Sugar Tax. It was essentially an Andy McCluskey solo album with a number of session musicians contributing. But it was a big success. It got to number three in the UK. It was uh, certified platinum in the UK and Germany, and it sold over three million copies worldwide. So, you know, a very popular album. And then, and this again speaks to what you were saying earlier on about our first perceptions of OMD. In 1996, basically Andy McCluskey called it a day with OMD. One of his biggest sources of frustration was the somewhat modest commercial response to Walking on the Milky Way, over which he said he sweated blood, considering it about as good a song as I could write. But Radio 1 refused to playlist the song, so it's 96. So you are very much in the Britpop area, and yeah, I sort of evoked Partridge earlier on and Walking on the Milky Way was like I can remember that coming out and it wasn't very good yeah it was proper Yadar so yeah Radio 1 refused to playlist it which meant that now defunct High Street store Woolworths refused to stock it Andy McCluskey said to The Guardian the upshot of it was one of the best songs I'd ever written eh really struggled to get to number 17 in the charts and I just thought screw this I'm not going to bang my head against a brick wall so, that was it for OMD. What did he do next? Well, yes, as we have mentioned before on Album Clash, Andy McCluskey then went on to inflict the horror that was Atomic Kitten on the world. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> that did not do anything to endear me. <laughs> and because of that, that this week, Kenny Katona has launched a warning to um, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> That'll learn him. <laughs> and I cannot claim credit for this. So I do not recall who made the comments on Twitter, but someone did say, is that because he threatened to invade Iceland? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Whereas I just said, was the warning that she'd threatened to release a new Atomic Kitten album. <laughs> oh dear. So... As with so many bands from this era, they did eventually reform in 2006. And of that reunion, Paul Humphreys told the Dallas Observer, we realised that there had been a resurgence in electronic music since 2000. People became more interested in our style, especially younger fans. People who wanted to slay the dinosaur and listen to music that was a little more intelligent. The climate had prepared itself for us to come back. We didn't come back for the money, we just wanted to do it. Yeah, but the money was a nice little bonus, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So they've released loads of box sets, deluxe editions of albums, etc. over that time. But they have released three new albums. So in 2010, they released History of Modern. In 2013, there was English Electric. And in 2017, there was The Punishment of Luxury. They've all been moderately successful. And just to finish off, a couple of things. They are still together today. They most recently toured Europe in 2019. 
And uh, around that time, in an interview with Liverpool's Radio City with uh, Pete Price, who may or may not be a lizard. Is a lizard. (laughs) Andy McCluskey said, being an OMD right now is the most blessed thing. It's like being 19 again. We can do what the hell we want. So, just to finish off then, legacy-wise, OMD are definitely, as you said, this is one of the reasons you picked this album for The Clash. One of the most influential and important acts of that late 70s, early 80s synth-pop movement. And again, as you said, they've been described as part of that holy trinity along with the Human League and with Gary Newman. And I think that's a fairly fair statement and a fairly fair label to, to, to put them. Yeah, definitely. And on that, I just want to read a brief quote from a 2007 article from, of all places, the Scotsman newspaper. <laughs> okay. Who said about the group... If Kraft worked with the Elvis Presley of synth pop, then orchestral maneuvers in the dark were its Beatles. Wow. That's quite, quite the statement. statement. <laughs> <laughs> Said in sync as well. <laughs> That's the truest moment of hive mind that we've ever had. <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, but that's all I've got on Legacy. Yeah, I've got nothing to add. All right, then. So, Kev, before we finish, what's your best song from organization? What's your worst song? So there's some there's some absolutely phenomenal stuff on here. The statues, Stanlow, the misunderstanding, like there's loads of really good stuff. Like the best song though on it, it is an older gay. It's a belter. <laughs> <laughs> My worst song is probably Motion and Heart. It's got some really good stuff on it, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure about it. Yeah, I, I I come down on that, but there's nothing there's nothing that I hate. This is this is very much not like last week. <laughs> there's nothing I hate here. That you know, there's there's all there's always something going on that that I can enjoy. Okay, so I'm going to do my worst song first because I agree it is motion and heart. It, it's a little bit too Brechtian for my tastes, and. I think it's somewhat out of place tonally as a result of that. I don't hate it, but I certainly don't love it. And my best song is a huge, ever-growing, pulsating brain ruling from the centre. Oh, sorry, that's the <laughs> <wrong> <laughs> uh, So I'm not going to be Johnny Obvious. You're right that Anola Gay is fantastic. It is a classic. It's a belter. But Stanlow's my best song on the album. It caught me completely off guard when I first listened to it. And it's a track that I have returned to several times since. In the same way you said mm-hmm. a few weeks ago at Winter Kills on Upstairs at Eric's. I think it's a really poignant closing track. I think it's a really great piece of music. And so Stanlow is my best track from Organisation. Okay, that's it's a really good choice because it's a cracking song, as we as we said when we went through it. Okay, but that's us done, I think, for this week. Well, apart from Kev, please tell people how they might keep in touch with the show on the socials. So this week you may have you may have seen that former Screaming Trees frontman and part of Queens of the Stone Age uh, did brilliant stuff with Isabel Campbell. Uh, Mark Lanigan has has sadly died, um, and there's lots of people paying lovely tributes to him on Twitter. You can also check out our Twitter whilst you're on there at Clash Album. You can see carefully curated quality content by going to our Insta at Clash Album, 
or you can sign us up for some more Norton um, antivirus <laughs> by going to albumclash at gmail.com. Great stuff. Uh, not Kaspersky, though, because, uh, you know, I'm not going to... I'm not going to finish that sentence. <laughs> uh, yeah, great stuff. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As I always say, please keep in touch with the show. Let us know what you like about it. Let us know what you don't like about it. What albums do you want us to do on Album Clash? What music can't you get out of your head? All that stuff. Subscribe to us. Leave ratings. Leave reviews. Sign us up to all sorts of spam. Uh, just remind people, Kev, what you're going to be taking us through next week. So next week we will be having a non-stop erotic cabaret with Soft Cell. Lovely stuff. Uh, until then, however, I once was a man named Tim. And I certainly used to be known as Kev. Great stuff. See you next time. Take care, everyone. ta Ta-da. Take care.